0: Welcome to another episode of Justin the Food Entrepreneur's Podcast. I'm Justin Bizarro, I'm your host, that's B-I-Z-Z-A-R-R-O for anyone who's out there. Uh, please find us on Instagram and uh, Facebook if you want, but more so on Instagram, at Justin Bizarro or at Justin the Food Entrepreneur's, that's B-I-double-Z-A-double-R-O for anyone who's looking for Bizarro. Yes, it is Italian. I don't know why people keep asking me that. I can't. I don't even know what to do with that question. Yes, it's Italian. How many times are and how many people are going to ask me that on Instagram? It's just a weird question. And like you're not even friending me or following me, but you're asking me whether I'm Italian. Yes, I'm Italian. I don't. I don't. With the name Bizarro, I didn't think it was more obvious, but maybe it, it could be Spanish. So. Um, That being said, I want to welcome back Isaac Beard of Pepper Fire Hot Chicken in Nashville, Tennessee. Sorry, guys. I'm a little, uh, I got two things going on here in my ears. And uh, how are you doing today, Isaac? Isaac?
1: Man, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back.
0: I'm really excited to have you back. Listen, I think one of the things that was so excited about the episode and the response that we got here as a podcast was it was the it was the first episode we did where we were authentic in that we brought in a Nashville hot chicken from the actual place and someone else, I get it, in Instagram, I hear you what you're saying like what about like the big apple bodega and the chopped cheese why if we do that i i get it i was more taking things outside of places and showing how they grew outside of their originality when i did like nash and proper which is a nashville hot out of sacramento and um big apple bodega it's just i'm looking for food entrepreneurs that are doing well the origins don't always matter for the story of the entrepreneur. It's not our subject matter. But in this case, I get what you're saying. You appreciate that I brought in an origin, Nashville hot chicken uh, and bringing in Isaac. So yes, that is true. (laughs) Isaac is from Nashville. And yes, he does have Nashville hot chicken. I will tell you guys, I did try the hot and I like hot food. And like, I'm experience Indian hot food and Indian hot peppers like you cannot believe based on a previous life. and I gotta tell you Isaac, it was on fire. I mean I really had to like think about it as I was going down like and I and just so everyone knows when I tried the food, I like bone in like the bone in is important to me and I know this is we're trending away from it, and everyone does tenders but for me I like the flavor of the bone and what it does to the meat, especially the dark meat. But they were two drumsticks and a breast. And I will tell you, Isaac, this chicken had to be gargantuan. Where did you find the size of those drumsticks? I don't even know. I was like, what is going on here? And what chicken did this breast come from? This thing, I don't even know. I guess chickens are becoming bigger, or there's such a rush on the normal, like, three three quarter pound to four and a quarter pound chicken that we can we can only get larger chickens now based on demand I don't know (laughs) but I gotta tell you it was a big piece of chicken so thank you but number two you're welcome the flavor was like I had tried the tenders guys the first time I was in and spent time with Isaac or the second time I don't remember if I ate the first time or not but it's um It just blew my mind how much better it is and why that's the originality of it. And I've probably tried it in the past being here at other places, but I didn't actually intentionally with thought do a comparison of what the experience was because there were also tenders in our order the other day. And I like tenders. I get it. They're convenient. You don't have to deal with the bone and the gristle and the fat, but the flavor difference was huge. And for me, it was hot very hot and I enjoyed it but there was a balance there because of that fattiness and I like the fat of animal fat that's just who I am I believe that it's important for our brain so bring me all the animal fat in the world Um, so Isaac let's talk about this as like regardless of where your business is going as a connoisseur of hot chicken 12 years in at least and I don't even remember how many years you were eating it every day maybe twice a day during that time um like why what is like do you see a difference in the bone-in and and do you prefer bone-in versus a tender is it like i mean let's not talk about marketing let's not talk about like obviously you we have to go for a tender for the world the world wants convenience they don't want to deal with a bone driving in their car blah 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 so but as we talked about in the last episode but let's talk about it as a connoisseur as like I mean, everyone's gone to a tender, we discussed that, but do you feel that the bone-in is going away from what hot chicken was, or this has to be a natural progression that we have to take? I mean, it's a crazy question, but it's a good one, I think.
1: Well, I think there's always going to be bone-in. I mean, even some of the guys that have come to town and run back off to other areas of the country with the hot chicken concept that are doing well, like and Ray's out in um, L.A. or... um, Oh gosh, um, some of the guys out of Columbus, Ohio, or or Louisville, that they've all got Bone in on there. I think the market. I think there's always be a market for Bone in, but it is. I feel like it's shrinking overall just because of convenience. But there's still going to be those places that you know they're big enough, they're strong enough that they can uh, uh, drag in enough people that will eat eat the Bone in. I love Bone in. If I if I go to a hot chicken restaurant, I may my my kids and my wife will always get. Tenders, but I will always opt for a breast quarter. Uh, my go-to at any restaurant is going to be a breast quarter, probably medium heat, somewhere in that range, with uh, crinkle fries and baked beans. That's that's my uh, standard bearer to see you know, where they're at, and um, this this always going to be the thing that I do. Uh, now I will branch out on other sides just to see, you know, if somebody has collard greens or something. I want to see how they make them. Uh, just to compare but uh, yeah the breast quarter is always going to be that special piece of cut
0: yeah and we had this question and and I don't know how to answer it's an interesting question and I didn't actually put it to you in the pre-notes because I didn't think of any way that I could fit it in the conversation because it just seemed odd but now that you just said that I'm going to ask it because um, I have it here in the notes is how do you dis- are the sides just Is there a standard size? Is it a South thing? Like we talked about the collard greens, the mac and cheese. I know what it is. I've lived in Georgia and in the South like a lot of time the last few years. So and now quite a bit of time in Nashville. But I think for the audience, I think everyone's always like, why collard greens? Or because it's just so unfamiliar to them or the baked beans. Because weirdly, the world used to eat tons of baked beans, but we don't eat them anymore. Uh, anywhere else other than the south that i know of at any significant rate so i think those are probably the questions but more so i'm going to point it so how did you determine your own sides was it something that was standard in the industry or is it something you're like oh these are the things that i'm good at or i want to be different i think that's a better way to phrase the question
1: Yeah. so i think going back and looking at every. And it's not just hot chicken. It's, just, it's all of the southern restaurants. We seem to all have the exact same sides. I'm not sure why that is, but it's if you go into the early hot chicken restaurants, there was always four sides. It was baked beans, crinkle-cut fries, potato salad, and um, coleslaw. It, it, everything was basically out of a can, and a lot of the guys didn't even doctor them up. They just... You know, they might throw a piece of bacon in there, and the worst part of that is if you don't cook the bacon into it right, it still looks like it's raw bacon when they toss it in your.
0: Yes, absolutely. But, I've been there. Yeah, I uh, agree and, with you. And
1: there's still there's there's still people that do this here in town. And it's like, man, it does not take that much to uh, cook a piece of bacon, or heck, just buy some pre cooked bacon and toss it in. Yeah. Something, but um, I. For me, I knew that that wasn't enough. I wasn't interested in just doing the standard things. Um, I feel like where our genre, and if you were to go back and look at every review of every hot chicken restaurant um, in the history of hot chicken since Yelp came out, they'll basically say something like chicken was amazing size.
0: Yeah. I think that's probably where this question originates from.
1: Yeah. And so for me, that, that early on felt like the real differentiator between us and everybody else was going to be, let's put together some amazing Southern classic sides that sure you can get crinkle cut fries here. You can get baked beans. We can make those better than everybody else. Uh, but then let's add some things that um, are different. And so it, and again, we didn't create any of these dishes, right? This is just something that we've just decided for us in our genre. We're just going to add more to it. So macaroni and cheese, you know, and that, boy, that's a wide burst. You know, do you do? Yeah. Oven baked? Do you do oven baked, or you do this? You know, if you don't have a salamander to cook it in, you know, how are you going to do it? And you know, so some of, some of the items we've gone very old school, very cafeteria style. That's worked well for us. Uh, other things like the collard greens, I, that's a tricky one. And I'll be honest with you, I am a collard green snob. I have a hard time getting down a lot of collard greens, other uh, places because they just taste like uh, freshly mowed grass.
0: Very um, good description, actually. That's I can't well, describe. I would have never put it that accurately, and I probably talked to a thousand chefs in my life that would have. When that happens, they've never described it that way, but it is exactly the taste of it right after you mow the grass. Like it's the thing that's in your mouth and in your eyes and in the air that you taste. But anyway, go on. I I, it's a very good description. Like I can't think of a better way to describe it.
1: Well, there's a reason for it, and I'm going to give away our secret here, sort of. But um, you cook your collard greens. Every store that I know of. They toss in a a giant pot of uh, collards they cook them down they put in the black pepper they put in a little bit of ham they put in whatever their seasonings are right but at the end of it you've got a giant pot of chlorophyll full water that might have a tinge of black pepper and ham in it and that is very original Uh, that's the way collards have been eaten for a long time but it's also the reason a lot of people don't like collard greens uh, turnip greens, I'd throw in the same category too. Uh, we pick collard greens. I feel like they're hardier. They're easier. They uh, they take a little more abuse in the uh, warmer than a turnip green would. Uh, but I, to me, we struggled with it and struggled with it and struggled with it, and, and we just could not figure it out. And then it dawned on me one day that I needed to reverse engineer the whole thing. And so what I did is I started I cooking it. my I started cooking the collard greens. Yeah. And then tossing all the water. So set those aside. Where the flavor comes from is making a soup separately. And so, you know, we make our own broth, uh, you, know, you know, bone broth. We take, um, you know, the garlic and onions and, and, and all the things that we put into our uh, broth. And then we take the drained collard greens and add it back to that. And that is where we get our, our uh, excellent flavor from. But I just it, it makes me cringe just thinking about um, 20 quarts full of color, uh, chlorophyll water. Well, and that's so.
0: exactly what happens. Actually, you, you nailed it right there. And well, and that's it gets so starchy over time by that there is starch still in vegetables, and and in the boiling process, and then by extracting out all that those sugars and everything that's in the vegetables to the boiling process, you're like almost like sugar at some point almost becomes like rancid and you're almost re putting it back into the, you're like taking it out, not making it proper and then putting it back in. I guess probably wouldn't sugar. I don't know exactly what it is, but that is, it's almost like you're right. It has to be removed. It'd be like, boiling carrots and then keeping them in the carrot juice and then adding the sugar or whatever or the flavoring. Um, it would yeah. taste weird. And it would taste diluted. And, um, yeah, it's in the, in this case, <laughs> I guess it is technically a grass. So, um, in some ways. <laughs> well,
1: right? So, right. And for us, I started thinking about, now, <clears throat> we don't make ramen broth by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, but I, I started looking broth. at oh i do too uh, and i love a strong pho but yeah. that's what we started we started thinking in that direction and like okay how do we get the broth to be exactly what we want it to be without having to worry about all this other you know flavor profile once we nailed down what we wanted our broth to taste like then that's when we added the greens back in and for us that's just a beautiful composition um and you know i we, we speak very highly of a lot of things, but our calorie grains are definitely high on the list. So,
0: Yeah, and I think, just for clarity, I think when you make soups and bases and stuff, it's, it's vegetable-based. Usually, I guess you could use fruits here and there, but mostly it's meat and vegetable bases, and it's the fats that come out that make the broth. In the case of uh collard greens like we said the stuff that's coming out is not the stuff that becomes broth um it's just it just doesn't work that way it's not that type of it's i guess people technically call it a vegetable but it's not really vegetable and so um it does it is a plant so there is that part but we do need it and it's good for us and i believe collard greens especially when I mean I don't understand it fully Because sometimes I taste vinegar Sometimes I don't And I, like I don't understand the whole thing And I'm sure the chefs at Back in the day at Food Service Partners They understood all of it when we were doing Southern hospitals and long term care homes And collar green by the Bulk five pound bags Out the door in massive quantities But I just don't understand it Because I just don't have Southern food is not something that I I'm overly crave. like I I grew up on Cracker Bar. Don't get me wrong driving around on the motorhome going to horse shows and soccer tournaments. But I don't have an appreciation for it. and, And the way I should even after living in Georgia, I didn't expose myself to it the way I'm doing now in Nashville. So it's all new to me. So like, you don't have to give away your recipe. But let's just argue, how does it how does it actually take place? You mentioned the bacon. So Would the ideal way to be to cook the bacon or fry the bacon and then put it in after you extract the water? Because I don't understand how some people get collard greens that are so good and some collard greens that are so bad, like you talked about. And you you talked about a little bit, but the water. But is there a way that they're – are they using vinegar to then dilute that taste? Is that what's happening?
1: yeah, one thing we don't we don't even offer vinegar in the store, uh, and that was a problem at first. But we stuck to our guns because you don't need vinegar with ours. You only need vinegar to cover up the nasty taste of yeah. collard green water. Yeah. So you know, when you remove that as an issue, then you don't. You know, it took a lot of selling on our part. Like, yeah, we got collard greens. Yeah, great. Where's the vinegar? Uh, you don't need vinegar. People would push back like, well, give me baked beans. No, you're gonna <laughs> just eat the eat the collard greens and if you st- still want some beans i'll give you some beans but you're going to eat the collard greens first and then they never complained after that so it took <laughs> a couple of months to get it took a couple of months to get the regulars on board and then i haven't had anybody ask for vinegar in i don't know eight or nine years That's so uh, yeah and it just comes from again we go back to we use a chicken stock um for the base and then we add you know country ham and then we add you know black pepper and a few things but again it comes down to making the soup base that you want and then adding the collards back to it. It's really that simple. Um, But most people just, it is an extra step. It does require a little thought into that. And you're going to have to figure out what that profile is that you personally like. And then you got to stick to it. You know, you can't come in every day and just toss the black pepper in there and then be like, well, I put black pepper in there yesterday. Yeah. But you know, today was a quarter cup and it was an eighth of a cup yesterday, you know, yeah. You know, you're all over the map, Yeah, you know. I know. So, I, I and- love the
0: uh, always, like, when someone comes into a restaurant and they do it to taste and then they throw a pinch of salt because they like more salt. And then the recipe's off too salty for the entire restaurant because the new chef just happened to have a, a, a liking of salt more than the last guy. So, but anyway, go ahead, Isaac. I think that's really keeping that consistency in your products important.
1: It is. And that way they can, you know, the customer, I guess it was, you know, do you want to be robotic in that sense, or do you want to have somebody that's got a little more flair? And I don't know that there's a wrong answer or a right answer. I know for us, there is. I guess there is a right answer, which is, let's be consistent. Um, you want to be consistent in their experience, but you also want to be consistent in the, the flavor profile. So for us, we we do adhere to the recipes um, strictly. Uh, but you know, if the recipes are good, then, then you're good. Um, we, we also add... Um, let's see here you, we're talking about different sides we've got apples uh, which we love of course that the apples yeah, I are love
0: a, the stewed apples the southern stewed apples I do like
1: yeah they're great and for me that's a uh, more of an homage to my grandmother we, uh, we we didn't I didn't come from a big family uh, in fact I came from a very small family but her uh, my grandmother had 13 brothers I think and sisters and but by the time I got old enough to go to family reunion I think a lot of them had passed away already um it seems like a lot of grandparents now are like 45 these days, but mine were actually old when I had them. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, she died at 103 and I did I, you know, and I was born in 74. So, I mean, she was old when I was, you know, when I was born. So, but we would go to um, Kentucky. I think it was Lynchfield, Lynchfield.
0: Lynchburg, and, uh, maybe Lynchburg. No,
1: it was Lynchfield. I think um, she was born in Boston, Kentucky, which is in the middle of <laughs> yeah. nowhere. Boston,
0: above. Kentucky. I love it.
1: Yeah, it's, I went there one time and uh, by myself just drove there. It took me forever. But I noticed it's. it must be on the Bourbon Trail because uh, yes. I passed a lot of the Jim Beam barns. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, in the fog, that's really cool looking, by the way. It was just at least
0: like probably part of it. the running of that moonshine down through Virginia into Kentucky because that was all that, you know, big like Roanoke area, southern Virginia, southwestern Virginia into Kentucky was all like – All that, that's where all those companies boomed out. It was all that. um, Well, I guess Jack Daniels was technically there before Prohibition. But anyway, go on. And I want to make a note. Have you ever seen the movie Road Trip back in the day with, like, Tom Green? I think the actor's name was. But anyway, (laughs) the confusion is, like, Austin, Austin, Massachusetts. And they're like, no, Boston, you know, and they're getting Austin and Boston confused. But it always reminds me every time I hear Boston um, that... From a different place, the confusion that happens because in the United States we have a lot of cities named like the same thing from from state to state or even county to county in some areas. Like, but anyway, to the point. Yeah. Go on, Isaac.
1: Well, I remember the first time I went to Boston. I, was, I, remember, I remember thinking this is gonna be so exciting, and, I, and when I got there, it, the cemetery was bigger than the city. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah that's exactly
0: uh, <laughs> exactly how I remember it as well
1: <laughs> so uh, but it's but family reunion we had um, I don't remember which relative it was but they had this ju- these two June apple trees out back that were uh, you know super tart super uh, dry and, and we started eating them and you know I'd make your face wince and they said well those aren't for eating those are for cooking and was, yeah. cooking what's the difference uh, anyway, so my grandmother and I went out and grabbed tons and tons and tons. Of that we filled up the trunk of my parents' car and came back. We, uh, you know, cut them, froze them. We'd spend all year, at least to the next uh, family reunion, just you know, cooking um, stewed apples. And so for me, that we, I decided early on as an homage to her that we would put the apples back on the menu. And, and um,
0: it's not a, all, it's always... not a red apple though, is it? That grows in Virginia? No, it's a, it's a green, apple. like almost crab apple, isn't it?
1: it's green yeah yeah it, now it's not it's bigger than a crab apple but it but I mean, they're a normal size apple but just slightly smaller
0: and they have um, a bear they're almost they're a little more sour than a normal apple
1: they they are at um, least the native very,
0: ones i would say i don't know if they're still around in virginia as much anymore but go on
1: well yeah they're very 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 dry yeah and um, I, I don't know what else to do with them other than cook them. But, uh, I can think that if not- you
0: could make like champagne out of it, like, or instead of grapes, like that would be like apple champagne or whatever, something dry like that. I always thought like that, but I, I agree with you. I don't think there's anything other purpose other than maybe an apple pie, but you'd have to, you'd need a lot of substitute to give it flavor because they are dry and they don't have a lot of flavor compared to a normal apple. I feel like
1: they, they don't, but, uh, but, that's, uh, like I said, an homage to her. And, I love it. And and so we, we have the apples. So And, of course, we have other sides, too. We have, uh, you know, poppy seed dressing, coleslaw. We we didn't want to go with a regular coleslaw. Um, in fact, I spent a couple of years uh, at Costco. They had this great kale salad that they do. It's all poppy seed inside. And um, I don't know. We just thought, you know, poppy seed would be a great way to go. I don't know if everybody would like it or not. It turned out people do love poppy seed dressing. So... Uh, if you ask them if they like poppy seed, they don't know what it is. But if they eat the coleslaw, they love it. So um, we do that. Uh, of course, we've got an old school. Uh, we go very old school on the banana pudding. Uh, we don't do any kind of frills or anything. It's, it's almost you know like grade school uh, cafeteria style with that. But I think that that brings back enough memories for people that they they enjoy it.
0: Oh my gosh! In the South, uh, in Southeast, I'm Alabama, Tennessee, Georgia. Uh, Mississippi, like banana pudding is a staple. It's crazy. Um, You know, when we used to be in um, Georgia, I mean, it's just something the employees ate almost every day. Um, They love bringing it, especially for the celebration. So it's like, I feel like that's a good staple and it represents the market so well here because, and I like banana pudding, just to be fair. And I'm not a sweet person. I don't really like chocolate and candy bars and all that type of stuff. I'm actually like, if I were to choose a sweet, I'd be like milk and cereal. But um, that's my like go to. That's like my cheat thing. But um, I do get the banana pudding thing, um, especially like when it's really hot outside. There's some weird comfort in it. And I totally get it because a lot of the food, just so everyone knows in the south, is based around like it's comfortable and it doesn't overheat you in a way and i don't know how to describe it but it almost matches the temperature even the barbecue it's like it's not doesn't heat you up like if i go like eat in wisconsin i'm eating like heavy food and whatever and like hearty food or or more of that midwestern food like i'm like stew and stroganoff and and stuff it in the south it's like a pick a meat and pick three would be the best way i can describe it and oh yeah and maybe it's not always – and people are like, oh, the southern food is not the healthiest food. But I will tell you guys this, and just so the audience knows, and I want to just – its it can be. But one of the reasons that if we have a tendency to just look at calories or just ingredients, we miss this. Does it have whole ingredients? Is it made from scratch? And if you look at a lot of the southern cooking, even if it comes out of a can here and there, it's primarily whole ingredients and it's primarily cooked the old way um at least the ones that stay true to it and it's not all packaged or whatever and even isaac he talked about how he has his methods and, and he in the bone and chicken and i will tell you you know isaac's like taking very good care of the tenders and and the chicken and the and the frying and all of that so there's a love there that doesn't happen Outside of the south as much anymore When it comes to sticking to traditional Cuisine I would say At the scale they cook it down here um, In the traditional sense So I don't know if that made sense To everyone but I just want to just Point that out that there's still a lot of I mean They grow big down here right Like football does really well down here CrossFit does really (laughs) well down here So the food's doing something Really good down here I'm just saying And so i just want to make that point so let's continue on this conversation isaac just on the food before we get into um something else is we talked about the banana pudding and one of the audience members um wrote in and asked if there's other desserts that you're thinking of because you've sort of created well let me people tend to write long questions so let me give the basis um it's based on the banana pudding, but it's also based on the fact that you've created such a diverse menu for your items like the pepper Jack, the pepper cheese and the tender Royale that it seems like the next logical phase for you is to spruce up your desserts or make you deciding as your sides and your menu. And so I'm going to paraphrase out of what I think the question is.
1: Well, I, you know, We're not sure about that. We're always looking at new dessert options. Um, One thing that we did decide to do normally in the the South, if you want to buy some banana pudding, it's going to cost you you three or four bucks, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely definitely a dessert. And I fought with even my wife on this idea because she was like, no, we got to get more money for this. I just like screw that. Let's just make banana pudding (laughs) aside. So if somebody wants to have French fries and banana pudding for their lunch, yeah, why, why not? You know, (laughs) so, so so that's what we do. And, uh, we sell a whole lot of banana pudding, uh, to people, but, uh, for desserts, I'm going to have, whatever we do, it'll have to be in a manner that works as a side item. Yeah. And, um, in that, and I'm, also i'm trying to figure out things that as you were talking about you know the boys grow real big here right yeah um i want to make sure that we the trick with desserts for me is making sure that i can eat them yeah and some of the stuff in the south man is like um you know add one pound of sweet potatoes and four pounds of candy canes yeah. and I, and I, that's not the direction i want to go with this <laughs> yeah um uh, but so I want to have something that's a little more uh, you know, that, that you can eat and not feel completely horrible about at the end at the end of your meal, or feel like that um, you know you need to go on some diet after you're done eating here. So I, that that'll be the trick with the desserts. I, you know, something we're looking at, but it'd have to be a side that we could incorporate in. Most likely, it'd be a cold side, and then uh, now I t- will tell you this: we did have uh, something that that I took off the menu because. We just weren't selling it, but I think we needed to rename it. We had a uh, what's called ambrosia salad. Do you know what that is?
0: Uh, it's a Jello with like.
1: No, no, no. All right, so there is an ambrosia that has Jello in it, and that is an abomination. I think it's written about in the Bible, as in Revelation, something that the beast would do. But, <laughs> um, but uh, there's another version that m- m- most people call a uh, five cup, and basically it's a combination of five things. It's
0: uh, oh god, this doesn't uh, sound good. I don't know No, it
1: is it's, it's sour cream, mandarin oranges, pineapple, uh, marshmallows, and coconut. I don't understand. And okay. It, and when you let it marinate overnight, it is absolutely.
0: Oh, delicious. I do know it's, what this is. I do know what it is. Okay, go on. I know what it is. It's, I, it's not, there's no jello involved in this, right?
1: No, there's no jello at okay, all. Okay, I now, know what you're there, talking about. Now, you're liable to, if you just randomly order, if somebody has ambrosia, it's probably going to come out green with all that crap in it, but there's but but the other version of ambrosia is a much simpler version that is just absolutely wonderful, but I don't think anybody understood what the term ambrosia meant. I thought it was a wonderful southern term. You know, my grandmother used to make it. You know, there's two things she used to make at Thanksgiving. It was an ambrosia salad and a Waldorf salad, and both of those things are just wonderful, but... You know, they, those two words tend to scare people off for some reason. They'd rather just go with baked beans and, um, yeah. and banana pudding. So, I like
0: them both. Well, I, I think if I know what the ambrosia salad is, like, I'm pretty sure I like it. But gosh, it sounds Italian to me for some reason. I don't like. I get it; it's in the south, but I feel like there's some Italian heritage there. Like, I've seen it on my table, and like Italian functions also. But I don't, I'll have to explore that. But the name sounds well, if you familiar.
1: I yeah, think of Jello, though,
0: that. for some reason.
1: Well, because there is one, and it's a horrible abomination. That stuff is just terrible, and it's even worse if you buy it from an institutional place, like a you know one of the, the big broadline suppliers. Yeah. And get it in a cardboard box. That stuff is truly horrible. But uh, but, there, but my my goal for the restaurant, um, you know, and it, it depends on the direction we go, right? So if we're going to streamline our business and and package it in a way that we can duplicate it, you know, over and over and over again with scale that makes it simple that, you know, you can kind of kind of dime it down, I guess is the term that might be used. Um, I don't know that we do this kind of thing. If we go down a different path where we have, you know, one large restaurant, I think the the focus for me is always going to be, we've got the chicken down, right? But I want to just expand and expand and expand the site and just find these old recipe cards You know, for my grandmother and my old aunts that, you know, the things that they used to make at holiday parties that everybody's forgotten about. And um, and really just make those special, not just something you add on to to fill your plate.
0: And um, I like this a lot, actually, Isaac. And I think you nailed something that's so important is you have these classic items that just need to be reinvented for the modern speed or the modern need or however you want to look at it, modern want. But that being said, I think we've lost a lot of those staples that have come in. And I just want to say this because Nashville like is growing and it's becoming uber popular and the tourism here is ridiculous. And while December, January is slow, the rest of the year, you have how many hotels? There's new honky tonks being built. I think Garth Brooks and um, uh, Eric Church are opening two new honky tonks here, also, and amongst other people. Who knows? There's always construction sure. going on here. But there's the thing with growth and with markets like this, and let's talk about this. There's a Broadway, so we're talking like almost 1920s new york-esque not like in the way things are dressed but just the way the city's starting to grow out of that main broadway entertainment business okay And, and where it started and just so everyone's aware that is where new york started was that main entertainment business yes it was at all the stock market and all that but what really happened is like as that became big then marketing became big because that's how third avenue became big because all this marketing industry needed to support it. And here it's music and yes, is it here? But there hasn't been the growth or or the income that Los Angeles or New York or even Atlanta has had in the entertainment businesses until now. So that being said, is the food's going to grow along with it? And in that becomes a huge push for international food and new food, which Nashville has a diversity of food, even compared to Denver. I will tell you guys, there's so much more diversity in the food here and the international selection. Denver has a lot. It's just less genuine. I would say for a better term, it's less toned down. It's more authentic here. And I like that. So what, what I think, that you're saying, Isaac, is how do we stay true to the South and stay true to these things that we saw on our table, maybe not only here, but growing up in our homes, at least in our age group. And how do we, you know, make those something people can get anymore? Because I will tell you also, and I'm sorry guys, I keep going on my commentary, is that the delivery business, the the do- DoorDash, the Uber Eats, the Postmates, whoever else there is, I can't keep track anymore. They're really that business is picking up, and it's almost driving less people to actually go to the restaurants. um, In a lot of cases, and I just saw a thing also, like even Ruth's Chris Steakhouse is just driving huge amount of to go business now. People aren't even going to that restaurant. They're like, oh, why get dressed up? I can have that. I can have that good shit brought to my house, you know. So, and, but to the point is these desserts, the foods we make they're less about going out to eat or having the convenience of eating. Now it's like people want these high quality stuff that they can get at any restaurant brought to their home. So it's also about quality. Now it's not just about to go food or a pizza slung in a box, you know? And I think,
1: well, that's, isn't that the trick, right? So, you know, as things are moving toward, and I don't think they're ever going to totally, people want the experience of going out. Look, I can't even imagine ordering a tomahawk steak for two and having it delivered to my house i that, can't a, I, don't wanna, I can't i don't want to sit on i don't i don't want to watch netflix and eat a you know a 300 steak meal that sounds terrible to me i want to go and you know have the dark lighting and and you know look <laughs> at my wife across the table and uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and get dressed up I, you know because i don't get a chance to dress up very much i mean um so i, I that's what i want but as the stuff has become more packaged and out the door you know there's a difference between getting food piping hot at your you know this cook to order at your table yeah and then having something that you know a driver picks up 20 minutes late and delivered out and you've got to figure out okay how do we incorporate the delivery time into the freshness of our food yeah and uh, that's been a real trick i mean you know you know everybody everybody knows that french fries after you know 15 minutes on uh really worth eating but you know half of our sides you know they go out the door have fries with them yeah but so you know we've had to look at that we have we actually start using um not on every order but um you know some of these um freshness packs that absorb moisture and we just you know adhere them to the top of the box and while it's not cheap to do so i think it provides much better
0: i agree with you
1: on that but you know you got to add that sadly you got to add that cost back into the uh plate price and you know the, the the more you have to think about that the more expensive the food gets.
0: Yeah, as I'm doing more consulting in this quick service space and with the delivery space also, I will tell you it's an interesting thing because the French fry almost made the quick service fast food business. It's easy to fry, it's starch, it's stabilized, it's good. Like people like it. It m metabolized into sugar, so of course people want more of it. And it's really like great. But the thing about it is, it's horrible once it goes past five, 10 minutes as a french fry. They start to get soggy. So it's this whole conundrum of is the french fry eventually going to be replaced? Because I will tell you one of the things I see in in the work that I do and in some of the things I'm doing and promoting the podcast and using some of these delivery services to help. Get more organic uh, looks onto the podcast, also. So I'm well rounded. I I take opportunities and I 360 them, but we can get into that in another podcast. What that means, um, which means, well, actually, I'll just say it. When I go into somewhere and most people just see the opportunity right in front of them, I do a 360 where what other things where I'm standing with this opportunity can I capture that make me money or or create jobs, or better the community that I'm in, so I 360 myself, meaning I stand still where the opportunity is that I'm at and where my current situation is, and I look around at all the opportunities around me, and usually that one opportunity that I'm in usually creates multiple opportunities, and it's really the difference between, you know, being able to be an opportunist and jumping on opportunities like I have now and having a new life and a new way of making money and income, which it was never about in the first place. It's about giving back is because I did a 360. So I think that that's important um, just as a side note um, to what you're saying. So what I also want to say, Isaac is, listen, I'm a traditionalist also. Like I rarely watch TV. It's just, I don't know why I find it to be like I'm very intentional with my time. So if I'm spending time with someone, you should know that you mean something to me because like I am so intentional with my time right now and how little I have and how I spend it in my entire life, especially because I'm trying to figure out, you know, how to move forward and and how to move and settle in in Nashville and, and so on and so forth that it's intentional. And in. Doing that, I will tell you that the dating thing is important to me. I'm in a relationship. I don't. I'm not dating anyone now or anything like that. That's not what I meant. I don't want to get anyone confused. Um, I'm trying to figure out. Like, just I'd like to be friends with someone first before we go into that. Attraction's great. It just doesn't always lead to great things. And um, so, friends. But anyway, but the dating within the relationship like on a constant basis like going out to dinner and not ordering in food and I get it and I'm not taking away from delivery and the convenience and you have kids at home and you don't want to cook I get all of those things but I don't understand the couple thing where you don't go out and you decide you want to stay home and you want to watch Netflix I get it but you're not going out and being romantic and getting dressed up and stimulating the brain towards each other and kicking in those chemicals and love things and and attraction like I just I, I will really encourage everyone I know this is the current trend and it's going this way It's just we don't eat together anymore at a table we order in our food and and all of us get different things delivered at different times which really means we don't eat together. And then, like, we don't even go out on dates anymore because it's just easier to stay in our pajamas or our sweatpants and, and watch Netflix. And it's just, I don't know, I'm a traditionalist and maybe I'm a dinosaur at this point for all intents and purposes. But I don't understand the not wanting to go out in romance and... And just have that thing over food, and and what you were saying was something else. But I agree with you. It's just like let's go out and taste the food. Let's go out and make it part of the experience. And for me, as a person in food, you'd think that oh, you know, the last thing I want to do is deal with more food. But I find huge amount of connection in food, in going out. Oh,
1: absolutely. Out. And absolutely. I mean, I don't know why. That's where it just is. Well because it's it's exciting it's um I, I mean food is life right so i mean you got to eat if you don't if you if you were to totally get rid of food you wouldn't last very long i mean you might be able to call it a fast for a couple of days but after that you're gonna hate it so um yeah i the whole going out i, I love going out um you know without a little it, at a minimum you've got to have some spontaneity right i mean you've got to be able Absolutely. to shake it up and, Otherwise, it's just going to be, you know, here we go again. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. But I, you know, and it's ironic for me because currently the space that we're in in this market is is all carry out and delivery. And fundamentally, that just makes my skin crawl. I mean, I remember one time, um, and this is, I'm, I'm glad she brought it home, but we had this kind of this recurring joke, which my wife doesn't like, but. Uh, I can't stand to-go food generally as a as a category. I mean, it's gotten better. I think everybody's gotten yeah. especially during COVID. They've gotten their game a lot better. Um, but, you know, my wife was coming in from almost from Alabama one time. And she was like, hey, I'm going to stop by uh, Taco Bell and grab some, uh, some tacos, hard shell tacos. I said, cool. And uh, we have a Taco Bell from our house. It's probably, I don't know, 10 minutes away. I, that's <laughs> okay, you know. But she stopped off in one that was 45 minutes away because it was easier for her. You know darn well that those hard shell tacos are garbage by the time (laughs) you got got them back and sat in traffic and all the rest of it. And and, uh, that's that's kind of my view of to-go food in a lot of ways. But I tell you, the game has changed a lot. Um, We're even starting to... um, there was a couple of restaurants here in town that when they opened up ramen restaurants, they absolutely would not, under any circumstances, uh, put a to-go uh, bowl of food uh, out the door. And in fact, uh, two, the two restaurants in particular that I'm thinking of, they if you had food left, left...
0: So, Isaac, I just want to start talking about what you're saying is that, and, and extrapolate more on it, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the to-go business is very hard because there's so many different moving pieces. And I think in Nashville, and I've been seen a lot of and done a lot of work in the Seattle market and Denver market and Washington, D.C. market in terms of delivery. But the thing about it is there are certain companies that have figured out how to get the drinks to travel, how to get the food to travel without the food having negative consequences. I mean, have you spent a lot of time on this? I think you started to talk about and we started to talk about the damage that's in the packaging and how people didn't realize it in the to go. Um before I interrupted you, but I wanted to interrupt because how much time you talked about sticking the things on the top of the box to absorb the moisture. I mean, is this a constant battle for you?
1: I think so. Um and you know, I haven't done a lot of traveling. I mean, I <laughs> sadly We've only been to a few states, and that's something I I need to rectify, like, immediately. But my guess is that here in the South, we've just been so used to going to a restaurant, sitting down, having somebody cook uh, dinner for you, and then eating it and paying and leaving. Uh, And we've had to go. I mean, obviously, we have to go. We have drive throughs and all that stuff. But even the drive through food is, you know, basically cooked to order. So you're still sitting there eating fresh fries, you know, out of your bag. Uh, My guess is that other cities have had this figured out for a long time. And so we're just kind of way behind the eight ball. And, um, but it it is a constant thing that I think about. Um, I can tell you that I have probably missed an inordinate amount of opportunities getting into catering, large orders and things like that, because I've just always had this apprehension to making good food that sits for a couple hours before other people eat it. And uh, it's something that I've had to just let go of because it's dawned on me in the last few years Apparently I'm the only one that cares. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I had a, a group of 30 people that I know that ordered my food for a, um, a meeting they had. And, you know, I, I, know them. So I obviously wanted the food to be great and be you know fresh and hot and crispy and all the rest of it. And knowing full well that, you know, they were going to order it. Some guy was going to pick it up. They were going to deliver it. They were going to have their meeting. Then they were going to eat. And, you know, that, and then I'd have to look at them, you know, a couple of days later and say, well, how's the food? Um, you know, in my mind going, ah, oh, they're going to say, well, it was, it was you know, it tasted great. It was, you know, I wish it was hotter. And they don't care. They didn't care. It was just, you know, like, oh, it was amazing. It was like, well, you know, the, the part of me that overthinks things like, well, I know it wasn't amazing because it sat there for, you know, for two and a half hours. But apparently, you know, the average person doesn't care or they've gotten so used to eating food that's traveled that um, I need to let that that presupposition go yeah. and, and, uh, and, and it, it, for me, that's difficult. Um, just because I don't personally love those things to be delivered, but, uh, but I order, you know, to go food, um, and, uh, and I enjoy it. I just, I have this other standard for myself as opposed to what I expect other people to do. So, yeah, we think about that all the time, but, you know, that's why we added some of these dry packs to some of our orders you know, to absorb the moisture and, um uh, you know, and just making sure. I tell you, as far as packaging goes, it's making sure that the drivers can't get into those packages. That's yeah. really
0: been the big, yeah. big issue for us. And I um, know, and we talked about it in the last podcast. And I think there's a, so much theft that goes on that people don't even realize where people steal the food or drivers log in and then steal the food and never deliver it and then you know a honest driver and an honest store owner are trying to figure out what the heck's going on with doordash and why the order was picked up and never picked up and so yeah and we talked about how needing to confirm the order be as the people come in because and watching the drivers confirm the orders that they've been picked up to make sure that doesn't happen but it is insane so i do want to give everyone part of the other problem particularly in nashville and it isn't as bad elsewhere is that the theft rate like you're dealing with two problems here one is you want the quality of the food to be good and go out the door you don't want the drivers to steal the food but you also don't want the drivers to still deliver the food and then eaten half of it on the way there and there's this compounded problem that exists in and it's merely because I don't have to. The packaging needs to be thought of in its entirety in the businesses here, and just by the nature of DoorDash moving across city to city in major cities first, or Uber or whatever, and. Nashville being a smaller market, I take I think it's taken a little bit longer, but here's the truth. If you're in the market, you're listening to the podcast, I know there's probably lots of Nashville food entrepreneurs that are doing this. You need to go out there and order DoorDash food and spend some money and have like the major companies deliver food to your store because they figured out the packaging. I will tell you, they figured out how to use certain packaging materials to deal with the fries or the things that Isaac's talking about, which is the moisture absorbers. There's lots of different things that companies have found out, and you don't need to start from scratch with an idea. You can order in food, have DoorDash or whoever deliver it to you, and... Understand what packaging is out there and go to the packaging expo. If you're really, really hungry, you need to save a little bit of money as an entrepreneur and make it a priority to go to the packing show for two days, one night, that we only have a hotel for one night and go see which packaging is out there. It's important in today's world. I'm sorry I tell it to everyone and Isaac just touched on it. If you're in the to-go food business, the packaging is how you deliver the last part of your experience to your customer. Now it's so important. And so anyway, go ahead, Isaac, I'm sorry to go on a commentary thing there, but I just think that we really need to emphasize that it can be about the quality of food and the safety of the food as well.
1: No, I I think you actually succinctly put up what I probably was going to say. Excuse me. Um, yeah, that's just really the big challenge for us right now is just making sure that the guest experience I mean, without having dine-ins dine-in, I control the guest experience you know, I can have the music on, I can have the lighting just right, I can have the, we don't have servers but I can have my staff, you know, be attentive and say, hey, can I get you a refill on this or can I do this or that, but you lose all of that on the to-go experience, so making sure that you don't botch that up by sending them cold food or or a food that's you know, completely steamed out, you know, that that's important. That's, that's how we, you know, can can work on our uh, guest experience.
0: Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I think it's the, and every restaurant's different, and every food's being cooked different, and fried food's going to act differently than a steak on a grill, and we just have to keep all this in mind, but no different than the soggy moisture from, Uh, french fries we're dealing things with steak like does it continue to cook oh what's happening with all the moisture that comes out of the steak when it sits that long in a box and so there's a lot of compounding things that we haven't even taken on as humans because other than a pizza being in a cardboard box and pizza being able to last on your kitchen counter for three days without going bad and you eating it breakfast (laughs) for breakfast cold every day and even with God knows what's going on on the pizza. It's still relatively safe. That's just not a majority of the food. It's just weirdly what happens because of the acidity in pizza and so on and so forth and the tomato sauce. But it's atypical. And you should still refrigerate pizza, guys. Sorry, don't ever not refrigerate your food. And I don't want people getting sick because that would be bad. But let's move on to the next question here, um, Isaac. And I want to keep moving on is, there's two questions here that I think are really important. The first one is, what you is the manifestation of your dream and what you're pursuing in Pepper Fire uh, match what you envisioned when you first started? Because we ended the last episode sort of talking about this topic, and I was going to begin with it, but we sort of went into a different topic. But I think it's important: is is this what you initially envisioned, or or why isn't it? You know, what happens as an entrepreneur?
1: No, absolutely not. This um i don't even know that I know what the original dream was. <laughs> but I had it but but I but I had it in my head and I dreamed it every day, you know, and it was gonna be this, and it was gonna be, you know, X and it was gonna be Y and Z and it was gonna function exactly how I had it and um, you know, I read the E Myth by Michael Gerber and I was gonna document everything and everybody's gonna come in and follow my uh Plastic cards on the wall, and it was going to be perfect. And um, and then we found this um, double-sided drive-through, which immediately didn't fall into any paradigm that I had. You know, all of a sudden it's like, well, wait a minute, this doesn't even look like what I was doing. Yeah. And but you know, well, okay, well we're still frying chicken, right? Yeah. Okay, that's good. So, um, no, I I think to the question, you start out with this this dream in your head and and it is very clear and you think to yourself well, I'm never gonna deviate from that because this is the dream you know it's what keeps haunting me at night what keeps giving me joy Um it's like thinking about the perfect Christmas present right and you know you're gonna get it until you don't and um, but you've got to let that go because that's really just a dream uh, it's something that your brain is, you know, processing to kind of put your your creativity into form. But but you know, if I had to open that up, there's no, there's honestly, I don't even know what that would have looked like. I know in, those in things,
0: pra- these type of questions and conversations scare me a little bit because, in one way, I would there might be disappointment because I didn't stay true to the dream. But at some oh, yeah. point, I'm just like. I don't even know how you stay true to them. I think, like, God gives you a calling or an idea, and it's to push you in a direction of growth that you have to do on your own because you have to have some ownership of it. And, um, anyway, go on, Isaac. I, I like where you're going.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, I, you have these wonderful ideas in your head, and and they're crystallized, but as you go through, I mean, you start to realize, oh, well, I hadn't really thought about that, or I haven't really considered this idea or the practical aspects of a deep fryer or this. And what you realize is that you're still on the right track, but everything's changing and that's okay. Um, I think there's a lot of times where I've looked back and I thought, you know, if I had grabbed what my quote unquote dream was as hard as I could, that didn't let it go. I wouldn't have made it where I'm at because where I was at was simply nothing more than just a beginner's roadmap to where I needed to be. And I needed to be able to use that to get started, but it was never intended to be the final product. And, you know, we're, we're not there now. We, we have, um, things that we look at about it and we go, all right, this is absolutely perfect. But then you sit around and you start thinking, oh, I don't know, maybe we could have 12 sides to <laughs> yeah. instead yeah. of you know, just four.
0: I whatever. go there sometimes too. I, and then I overindulge. <laughs>
1: Or the other side is you end up um, thinking about it so hard that you never, you just get frozen and yeah. uh, and, and and that's n- never good either. But no, the, the dream doesn't look, most likely the dream itself will not manifest the way you think it is. It will manifest. It just won't be what you initially thought it was. And that's okay. You need to leave yourself the room to grow into what it should actually be. Not some little um, predisposed, box that you can't ever get out of because I think you'll stifle the creativity if you do
0: that yeah Um, I agree with you 100% and I I don't know how else to describe it um, as an entrepreneur and it doesn't the words that come out don't actually match what happens and I've done this over and over again with business I'm like in the middle of doing this on a major scale as I reinvent myself but it's it's like I had no idea that like I'm be honest with the audience, like this podcast has been a project. Okay. First we did it, we were all in, does really well, then COVID happens and life goes upside down and we think we're gonna go you know, get contracts and sponsorships and we might go that route and life goes upside down and I can't get the podcast to for the life of me to get any stability in my life with everything else going on. And then all of a sudden the podcast has stability uh, and because someone asked to be on it randomly when I was probably going to tank the whole thing, honestly. And um, so I'm like, okay, this works. But that's the part about it. Like we don't always know what the dream is and we don't always know why. But if we keep showing up to the dream or where it started, it does manifest itself into something that becomes part of our life. And over the long run, if we stay true to that dream and why we did it and and don't chase the, the monetary aspect, we chase the part of the dream that makes us feel good about ourselves and that we have a purpose and that we feel fulfilled. And then people become attracted to that. And that's what really makes people money, just saying. And it's it's what the entrepreneur needs to look at like the whole point of the dream and the initial thought is because we need to go through the process of growing which is the part that attracts people to us and to our businesses and it's no different than dating and and whatever else in in, in life or whatever and i will give it to you this way as as a human as someone who grows who grows other people being an entrepreneur is a lot like this like it is like being single and trying to find a purpose as an entrepreneur you're trying to find you know someone that matches your lifestyle and whatever but if you're not friends with it first and it's not just like an attraction because if i'm like oh i really want to do spaghetti and meatballs but i don't it's not a long-term friend it's not something that really means something like hot chicken is a long-term friend to isaac and those are the things i'm talking about and as an entrepreneur i've It's taken me way too long to realize this, that I've had success as an entrepreneur because the way I handle my life and I structure my life, and because I do have this same philosophy, which is the dream, and the dreams are big, and I just have to understand that they come and the dreams come, but the way they manifest themselves aren't always the way that I want them. They're the way that I need them to grow to get to where I want to go to have the family or the relationship I want to go it means that I've got to take the hard road every time which is crazy because we as humans we want safety we want simplicity we want the easy road or the high road but the reality is is it's actually it's just showing up and it's day and day sometimes for 12 years in Isaac's case and you know in a lot of businesses, it's a decade or two before they really become successful if they're a tangible business and they make yeah. tangible items. And that's just why this conversation is so important, what Isaac's saying in the manifestation of the dream. It's just you've got to pivot. And just because it was put into your heart – and your mind doesn't mean you need to be stubborn and hold true to it. I mean, a lot of people talk about what happens in the two and a half years and why businesses go under. It's because they never get off the original idea. It was never meant to stick. It's not the way humans work. And I will tell you, if someone told me, At 18 years old or 22 years old in that range what life was going to be like when I by the time I was 42 and what I was going to have to give up and all the partying and all the time with the friends and the weddings and the stuff to grow because I was worried about the humans and making sure they had a life and being an entrepreneur sometime like having three jobs in one day and wearing multiple hats that it is a sacrifice I may not have done it but Knowing it and getting in pieces is what kept me fighting every day and kept me with hope. So, a lot of people come to me, Well, I just want answers. I just want to know what it looks like. Well, then you're never going to get what you want. I'm sorry if you already know you don't have the hope and the pain that it takes to get prosperity. And sorry, I'm on a tangent, but I love this topic because it is essential and it helps us simplify our lives and our businesses. Or make them better, or provide better solutions for humans, and you know, holistically. If and I keep talking, I'm sorry, this is Isaac, but we don't always know why it. And just because I came to Nashville for the podcast or some consulting work, it's turned into I'm very involved in the community, and I mentor musicians and entrepreneurs and athletes suddenly, rapidly, and and in addition to everyone I already. Uh, Mentor and coach. And so life has a way of manifesting itself when you're in the right place and making the right decisions and you're true to yourself. So I'm sorry about that. I just want to highlight that for Isaac. So, Isaac, on that note, what are the three best qualities within you that you believe have made you a great entrepreneur over the last 12 years? Because the fact that you're still thriving your business is still going, you're you're still in the mindset of I can do this and I can still be bigger and better and grow. Like what qualities gave you those abilities? Like what do you think is the things that make you who you are, I guess?
1: Oh, um, I, I don't know why I'm reminded of this. Uh, there's a song that plays in our, at the restaurant all the time. I think it's by The Wallflowers. I don't remember the name of it. I'm going to butcher the lyrics, but it said something like the only thing that stays the same is that you've never changed. And I used to kind of think that was, I was listening to that one way, and then one day it dawned on me, that was the problem with the person. It never changed. (laughs) Everybody else has moved on and and grown. And this one person, apparently, in the song is just, you know, they're still the same person they were. Um, I guess you could read that uh, song you know, maybe it's positive that they haven't changed, but I don't think so. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know, think I, so either. No. And I, and, and that is, as I listen to that lyric is that starts to haunt me more and more of just making sure that I'm not stuck and stagnated. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think there's some guys out there that they're like, you know, super entrepreneurs, but they're also extroverted too. Yeah. So those are the ones, you, you know, you think, oh, well, those are the superheroes of this uh, of this game, right? You know, they can, you know, put their mind to it and go do it. And, and I think there's the rest of us just kind of trip over ourselves and eventually get there. But, man, it just takes a lot, a lot of work and a lot of uh, pushing through, you know, things about me. You know, I'm not the super aggressive guy that's like, you know, thumping my chest all the time and saying, you know, look at what I do. In fact, you know, we've done all these TV shows and I, you know, the one thing I always told them is that I don't want to be the focus of this thing. I want the restaurant to be the star, you know. And I, where I notice other guys are always like, you know, and I did this and I did that and I did this. I don't think there's a wrong approach to that. It's just not my style. So um, so where I've had to be stronger is the creativity aspects of this. Um, it would be very easy just to, to be an also this. I mean, there's... Uh, seven, eight hot chicken restaurants in this town. And to this day, all they do is what the old school stuff was, which is just breast quarters and leg quarters. And you know, there's since the demand for tenders is there, they've just you know gone down that path too. But they're not pushing the envelope any. Uh, maybe that's not your place in life. Uh, for me, I feel like that is. Um, we've always been the redheaded stepchild of yeah. hot chicken. Yeah, they, that we just we just came in at that weird time, you know where. It was definitely a, um, uh, it, you know, eth- an ethnic type food, um, and when we and it wasn't that there was never any white people that got into this thing. It just wasn't; they just didn't make it.
0: Um, yeah, exactly.
1: And and there was a time where you know I ran demographic studies on you know, okay, why do these three restaurants actually make it and all the others fail? And I, I don't, I, I won't go into all that, but you know, it, it's it's been interesting to see that those demographics they don't matter anymore this has become such a genre with force that it it doesn't matter where you put one of these things anymore i mean i don't know that you put it in a super super high-end area where you know they're all steak eaters but uh but the average i think a hot chicken restaurant can almost um be anywhere and it could be outside of the state or the city of nashville now and they're all over the place in in, in america yeah Yeah. And, and it's been interesting to watch that um but I think being willing to push the envelope, um, as we talked in the last podcast, we obviously did not create the sandwich, right? We obviously did not create tenders. We obviously did not create a lot of things, but we were willing to actually put them on our menu and take the heat for them because, uh, there was this mindset that if you deviated from what the norm was, you were just bastardizing everything. And, um, and now it's pretty cool to see whether it's our fingerprint or not. Um, that stuff's everywhere I mean there's hot chicken quesadillas there's yeah. you know, some guys got a hot chicken egg roll that you know you talk about pork chops that uh, there's a uh, one of my early favorites was a place called 400 degrees and yeah. uh, I she, love she that place in- actually yeah been she, there you know, she does a wonderful job uh, but her pork chop is amazing and you know expanding the genre to pass to, it doesn't have to just be chicken I mean there's fish I don't love fish um, I did a, a festival one time and they invited a fish guy to kind of fill the spots out and I was downwind to him for, for six hours and I just you know six hours of just being beat to death by <laughs> this fried, fried fish smell I just like you know what I'm not doing that
0: yeah and so and you need to keep man. your oil separate and stuff it becomes a pain in the butt if you have chicken in your restaurant also at least maybe not in Tennessee but everywhere else I've been you can't fry the fish in the same oil as the chicken the flavor gets all messed up
1: no, that's science. Uh, <laughs> that's science. Uh, and and there's guy there there's a guy right now loving to death, but for whatever reason he cannot learn the lesson. You don't cook chicken, pork, and fish in the same fryer. Yeah. Because they all because they taste terrible. Yeah. Um, so so you got to figure that stuff out. If you if you have fish, you need to have one fryer that only does that. Uh, I mean, there's nothing worse than ordering a, a, a plate of fries from somebody that tastes like weird pork chop fish fillet
0: oh god and i will tell you i don't know why but the, uh, it's the biggest mistake here in the south like i would say hands down if i were to talk about the biggest rookie mistake in the food business even though some of these businesses have been around 30 40 years and i get it you could explode your numbers out and grow publicly by just maybe Fixing that problem, but I agree with you. And some people cherish like their oils 30 years old. It's we've talked about this, it's not good, it's not good food, it's not good for you.
1: Yeah, Yeah, you know, know, the carcinogens and this stuff at some place, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, So, you know, I it sounds neat on TV, um, it makes for a great story, but yeah, uh, you know, somebody's cooking with oil that's you know, legendary and 20 years old, maybe. But <laughs> yeah, it's legendary.
0: I, 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 it's legendary. Yeah. It's just probably notorious versus le- and the legendary that you want. Um, I want to talk so, about something, Isaac, that you said real quick before I forget is that I always find this so interesting, particularly in food, is that people get so caught up in the purity of the originality. But what they don't understand is the whole reason there is now a quote unquote original is because someone created something different. So it, it weirdly, and I use, I'll use i use Kansas City Barbecue as an example, is the reason it became popular and became part of it in mixed in with Texas and Southern Barbecue because it was, and, and while there is good barbecue there, and we all know it now, the reason it became so big is because it had competition, because there were people went out and they... Took St. Louis barbecue and fusioned it. Like a lot of fusion barbecue started out there, um, and the way it was done. And because there was that differentiation, there was now an original St. Louis barbecue that now could be a staple across the market. And I, it's hard for people to understand, but in the marketing and the human mind, we categorize everything by nature. And in doing so, um, It's important because there is no originality unless there's an alternative. Like, it just doesn't happen. And the original will never be known as the original and grow as the original, like the original hot chicken being in nashville if there's not people doing hot chicken everywhere around the country and then people come to nashville and i want the hot chicken i've tried it blah 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 i want to try it in nashville that's important it's not just come to nashville for hot chicken because this is the original place for it it's that they're trying it elsewhere and now they want to try the place that's the original and i think that yep. that's important anyway i'm i'm sorry isaac i cut you off there but i'll let you continue
1: no it is and and That's one of the things that used to drive me crazy about hot chicken was I loved hot chicken. It's something that I I never understood why there wasn't more people that would eat it. I mean, I get not everybody wants to eat the hot, right? But they had mild and medium, and most people can make their way to the mild at least. But when I first started eating, you know, Nashville was, I don't know, maybe 500,000, 600,000 people. And probably 3,000 of us knew what hot chicken was. And it's like, why has this been such a thing here? And nobody knows what it is. That You know, keeping it a secret and, and all this stuff. And so it's been neat to see this genre just really explode in the last, um, well, I mean, five, six years, really, but uh, 10 years. Uh, you know, of course, we've got the, you know, a festival here. Just, you know, I think it's a lot of it, too. People coming to Nashville for our Fourth of July celebration, which is pretty spectacular. Um, it's really one of the best in the nation. Everyone well, keeps telling
0: me about it. I am i don't even know what it is, but everyone's like, oh, you can't wait for 4th of July, it's great. I'm like, what are you talking about? Especially, like, you're a foodie, and I'm like, yeah, I don't, it's so funny that people call me that, because, like, I don't see myself that way because I was a food entrepreneur first. Like, uh, the food enjoyment thing became because I was an entrepreneur, so it's not like I seek the world through food, it just was the, the vehicle I was given to perform my art. And my art is an entrepreneur- the vehicle is the food. And just like I can do it through media. That's one of the things I've realized is that food was just a vehicle for for me and a true entrepreneur. They're the things that were good at our vehicles. I don't recommend jumping industries because that's oh God don't ever do that. But um, I don't remember what I was talking about. I want to ta- ask this question, though, Isaac, because you touched upon it. And I'm going to go back and talk about this another point later. But what is the difference between hot chicken, fried chicken or I mean, okay, let's just talk about, because I have the question. Everyone's still confused, and I guess I can't answer them, and I can't even answer the guys in the studio, and we're, and some of them are even from Nashville. Is What actually is Nashville hot chicken? It's fried. We fry it. But what makes it different than a Cajun Popeye's chicken or Zaxby's or KFC? And I'm not – I know those are – staples and it's not even close to the same because those are franchises and you're not a franchise but i don't know how else to compare it
1: well i guess the first question really is what's the difference between fried chicken and nashville hot chicken um not much so all this every bit of this is going to come down to um uh, not seasonality uh regionality sorry that was the word i was trying to pull out uh it's just regional. So look you have to start with good southern fried chicken. Bottom line. So if the chicken itself can't be eaten uh, as by itself, straight out of the fryer and it'd be good, then it's a non starter, right? Um you, you you start with just great southern fried chicken. What makes it natural hot chicken though is the dredge itself, right? So, you know, just like wings are wings and then you've got buffalo sauces that's what makes it Buffalo wings Um, you've got barbecue but what you put on it whether it's a rub whether it's a sauce that will determine the regionality and what style it is Uh, natural hot chicken is really just good on a southern fried chicken and then we place a uh, a dredge an oil oil oil-based dredge on top of that and that's what natural hot chicken is it's a combination of oil and spices at some level of thickness uh, at some level of heat that uh, is what we call Nashville hot
0: chicken. Yeah, and I mean, I don't, in Georgia, in that area, like chicken and waffles, like fried chicken is a big deal. And like, gosh, I think they use a lot of honey on the chicken as well. I've, I found in Georgia, like they fry the chicken honey. So it's just honey chicken. I think honey fried chicken is what they call it. And at least yeah, I think. So, I, and so it's kind of like this, guys. It's like a, a regional thing. But. The appeal to me, it's like people think of it as just like okay, you have buffalo chicken, it's from Buffalo, and you have Nashville hot, and it's from Nashville. But if you stay traditional to it, it's not just coating the chicken, right? There's the ingredients in the coating and the way you brine it is different, or is that not true?
1: Well, some people brine, some people don't. Uh, when we use, we we do have a marinated uh, chicken product, but um, what's going to make the difference is. So when, you, when you're looking at sauces, when you're looking at um, different textures, a lot of this stuff comes out of a bottle. So, you know, if you go to a buffalo wing store, you're going to get your choice of, you know, Cajun, barbecue, honey bow or gold or whatever they call it. And, and, and you know, sunshine or wh- whatever the different flavors are. But those things are all made in the factory. Uh, and they all have whatever they have to have to hold them together. And those sauces, I don't care what you do to them. They'll always be exactly in the, in the state they're supposed to be. So, you know, like ketchup, you know, ketchup is ketchup. You don't argue with it. You dip your fries in it. You know what it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: Bar- 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 barbecue sauces are exactly the same. the ketchup for chicken. Um, however, when you get into rubs, that's where you start to get into the actual thing of, uh, this is real honest to God spice. You're not using, um, there's no chemical combinations with this stuff. It's real, honest spice. And so whether it's, you know, cayenne or a black pepper or garlic and onions or whatever, there's just, it's, it's and it's core, I guess you'd call it real food, right? And so it's really just kind of untampered with. You're finding the blend that you like, that works for you and, and your taste profile. And then, you know, where the magic happens is uh, you take a certain amount of that, you mix it with we, you know, fryer oil. Almost everybody that does this authentically uses fryer oil because uh, you've got the, the the chicken taste in the um, in the oil itself. It it, your cooked oil has. You know, if you put fresh oil in a fryer, it tastes different than if you've got a few cooks under it, right? Um, and always, so Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it's seasoned. I guess you want to call it that. So we so we're using the fryer oil. We're making uh, something to dip it in, and then on top of that. Once we've dipped it, uh, we use enough uh, spice in the oil to give it a good color, but then the rest of it comes from hitting it with a shake of the same stuff on top. And it's, you know, it's not complicated, but I say the difference between us and other genres of food is that I would describe what we put on there as actual real food, That's real spice. Um, and uh, I think that's what makes people come alive to the hot chicken, that it's not there's something about using real spice in the quantities we use that just make people's um, uh, taste buds and, and uh, brains kind of come alive.
0: And so, I uh, like this topic because it, I agree with you 100. percent. If you it's properly used, the spice that goes on it, which you know, I think a lot of people get confused. Nashville hot is it's a coating, like a wet coating like they do at Wingstop or whatever, but it's not, there's the dry rubs important. And this is why, and this is why I like dry rub barbecue versus sauce barbecue. And that's just my personal thing. I'm not a big sauce person other than French food and Italian food. I believe it belongs there, but that's here nor there. That's just me. Um, And my opinion doesn't really matter in this topic. But what I am saying is, it's important because when you do the dry spice, it layers the effect on your tongue or your taste buds, okay? You get to feel those flavors differently and they hit differently. Where if you emulsify them or you combine them in a sauce where all the flavor comes together, it's important. It just gives a different reaction because it's happening all at once. So it's a stimulation that happens at once. So one's like, oh, it's really good and there's all this and you feel heartiness and and both. And the other one is when I taste Isaac's chicken, I can literally taste the pepper. You know, I can literally taste the other ingredients that are in there and I know what they are. If I have any, you know, I've been around hot chicken or I've been anywhere around where I actually am a foodie by the definition of the term and I understand the difference of sauce and spice. OK, because that's important, because we can put all the spice in a sauce we want. It's just it's not the same as spices broken up in the way that they did. And it's you have a great delivery system. I don't like again, guys, and I want to go back to this and we talk about this like we had like huge pieces of chicken and we were trying to do some photography, which we did. And we ate some of the food, but it sat in the fridge for probably three days as we picked apart it because it was so meat good. But even days later, even cold, even when it was warmed up, we tried all of it just because it was here, because we enjoyed it. It's that, it doesn't matter. It's that layering of the flavor that no matter whether it's cold or hot, for me, I like food cold and I like picking it apart also, meat and stuff. And we talked about pizza. Maybe it's an Italian thing. But it's, I like that. I like trying the food when it's in its settled state, which is where all the you know organisms aren't going crazy and making it hot and so I do want to say that that I think that if anyone wants true Nashville hot like there's a lot of ways and you can just code it it doesn't make any difference but the difference in what you're doing is that layering of spice and there are some other people that do something similar but I will say that you've got a good spice blend and the layering of the spice. And I know you worked a long time at getting that right, as we discussed before. Um, but it is important guys, like in food, the spices we use and how we layer them and whether they end up in a sauce or as an ingredient are hugely important. And I just, anyone who listens in, who's not an entrepreneur is listening in because they're in the foodie space. Like it's something to pay attention to because, You know, how reckless are we when we put together food? Sometimes, you know, you could be the Chinese restaurant or the Mexican restaurant and everything just goes into the recipe, you know, and then you sprinkle a little garnish on top. But if you're doing what Isaac's doing, even in the fast food space is you're layering the flavors into your food. So it becomes part of it and it takes more time. Right, Isaac? I mean, you're
1: it does. You've you've got layer on layer on layer. I mean, you've got the brine, which goes into the chicken got the flour which goes onto the chicken then you've got the the spice which goes on the chicken I mean, there's by the time you get done with our product you've got four you know four or five layers of flavoring that's gone into it to create this cohesive product yeah. it's not just you know sauce on top of you know but make, yeah. make it wink yeah so and you know the trick for me too has been I and mean, I think all of us struggle with this until we finally figured this out but man having the right uh, partner on making the spice can be a trick. I mean, yeah, we had we had a spice blend that was, I felt like, uh, it had taken us years to get exactly right. I mean, there's some, I, I'm not a chef. I don't have that ability to just, you know, put flavors together. It takes a long time for me to weed through it, find the right, the right combination to get all that stuff, do all the testing. Some people have that natural gift where they can put something together in a night and move on with their lives. That's not me. But, <laughs> We were making it by hand for a long time. We finally uh, offloaded that to a company. And it was amazing that one day we woke up and we realized, oh, my God, we don't even have our product anymore. Because the, you know, spice changes, right? You know, you get paprika or, you know, cayenne or garlic. It doesn't matter what you get. It comes in from, you know, some country like India or China. Exactly. And then they have floods for the next two years. (laughs) So the next couple of batches taste completely different. You know, it's like, you know, I guess it'd be like different coffee blends. Uh, You know, and everything's being made to the same spec. But all of a sudden you wake up one day and you go, oh, crap. Our signature thing isn't our thing anymore. So it took a long time to figure out. Okay, technically, how do we keep this to be exactly the same forever? Luckily, we finally found the right partner on that. But um, that was, well, that was a trick.
0: Well, and I think Uh, it's so true, Isaac. And this is the thing in food, and especially with fresh ingredients and like green chilies out of um, green hatch chilies um, are an example of this. Because they can vary in heat so much even within the same region. But here's what I, like soil acidity levels matter and, and humidity levels matter. And so what Isaac's talking about is like when you scale a business and stuff, there's a reason everyone just sticks with salt and pepper. They're the two easiest ones that don't get compromised so much by growing in different parts of the world, which is why they're so successful. Just there's a convenience there, guys. And just so we're all aware, it's we used to call it the network effect or network strategy. But what happens when things are easy, sometimes things become more popular or successful when they're easier for humans to grasp or do or grow versus what actually makes logical sense, like it's healthier, it has health benefits or whatever. So sun pepper, fortunately, do have their health benefits, both of them. Pepper's great for digestive aid, guys. You should use a shit ton of it on your food and help your digestive system, especially with all the processed food we eat now. But... Um, and what I like about what you said is it hit home is that you can eat at the same restaurant and have the exact same item. And depending on how they get their spices, that dish could taste differently. And it's a very, very true in food. And it's part of the problem with getting food internationally is that you lose the regional flavor of your food. Sometimes, um, and it happens you can always tell when chicken comes from a foreign country guys like we use very specific things in the way we feed our chickens and corn happens to be one of them so there's a sweetness to our chicken that's naturally there other countries use fish um, fish byproduct or animal byproduct so the chicken tastes different a little bit and it's just the way it is if i put you know, X amount of nutrients in the ground here and a different set of nutrients in the ground there, even though the, the asparagus looks the same, they're going to taste a little bit different and it's just the way it is. And that's cool because it's actually absorbing the nutrients out of the ground. That's how it grows. So I like this Isaac, because it is a real problem with trying to maintain a flavor profile that defines your entire food business. Um, So we've never talked about it holistically on the podcast. So I like that. Um, as we wrap things up here, Isaac, let's. Ask, I'm going to ask you one more question, and then um, we'll sort of start to close things off. So, uh, okay. Um, well, actually, I have a few here, so I'm going to just scan through here and make sure I ask the one that I feel that I want to. Okay, as as an entrepreneur and as a leader, like how do you instill the core values that made you successful in your life into your children? Like it, it, cause I don't know. So I like the question because I don't have children on my own, but how do you take, and I, well, I shouldn't say I don't know. I believe that I know based on an entrepreneur and being successful, but I don't know in that I don't have children on my own. So I don't have the experience to back up my knowledge other than non children. Just, okay whatever it doesn't matter but how do you do it um how do you pass on that knowledge because i think it's so important as entrepreneurs that we pass on the knowledge to our children so i like the question um you know we've mentioned you work with your family so i mean i'll help q if we need to because i have some thoughts but um well, How do you, you know, instill that same free spirit and knowledge in your children that you have as an entrepreneur, so they pick up the entrepreneurial spirit before you did? I guess would be yeah. a really a great way to put it.
1: Yeah, I don't know that they would pick it up before I did because you know I, something we didn't talk about last time, but I, I don't know you've talked about this about yourself. I, I feel like I was to some degree, although, I, well. I was thinking about this afterwards. There was always things that I was doing, right? So, you know, my, my dad had a uh, business, and he would have me work down there at the store. But, you know, where I felt like I was the most creative was break time. It was two breaks these guys got. They had 15-minute breaks and the lunch. But they didn't have enough time to go run errands. And so I ended up, you know, like 7 and 8 and 10 years old, developing a side hustle where I would go and run that. But I got to keep the change. <laughs> you know, and, it, you know, I, my parents could never figure out where I was getting all this money from. And it was because I was running errands for all the employees down there. And, you know, I was bringing home $30, $40 a day. And, um, you know, so that that really got me excited. And then um, yeah, I just kept doing little things like that until I eventually got to where I'm at. My kids don't have the same proclivities that I do. Um, and so I'm trying to figure that out. Uh, what I, what I know that I can do with my children is this, they're in the business. They see the daily struggles and you know, where I've got one that I think is going to end up being on it, you know, working for himself at some point. I've got another one that probably because of the field she'll pick, will probably go in and work with other people. But what I want them to gather from this is that you need to work as if you are your own boss. Um, Do, and I think that'll set them apart. Not to be but also not to be afraid to take risks, uh, to, to keep that entrepreneurial mindset with them on every job that they do, even if they're working for somebody else. Uh, to push the envelope, you know, one of them's gonna end up probably going into creative arts. And that's gonna be great while she, well, she may not work for herself, you know, she's constantly gonna be using creativity and entrepreneurialism in, in developing new things in that field that she's working on, new characters new. New, you know, art uh, styles or whatever that may be. Um, my hope for them is not necessarily that they become entrepreneurs in themselves, but that they learn that there are risks to everything you do, um, and that it's okay to take those because the reward of taking the risk will far outweigh the stagnation of not doing it.
0: I agree with you, and. Um... They're in there. They're asking me to answer the question in the studio as well because they're asking how I would answer it if I did have children. So I will answer it. But I agree with you um, 100%, Isaac. And I think I like the question, but in I have to rephrase and reframe things in my mind because if I take questions that people ask, and people will see me do this all the time, and it doesn't fit in my visionary thread of life. It'll call. It's like too complicated for me. I'm like, I can't even think about that. It doesn't match my visionary thread that I want for my life. Let me reconstruct it or reframe it so it fits into that so I can see how to answer it. So in this case, I don't have children on my own. I have had stepchildren in my life. So I understand the raising of children and I grow humans. That's part of being an entrepreneur. But I think the most important thing that I think... Regardless of if my kids are entrepreneurs or not, and um, I'd step kids and like two of them are like, well, um, the youngest and her future husband um, are very entrepreneurial and in the CrossFit space and stuff like that. But here's what I would say, um, honestly, that I think is so important that if I were to pass it on, it's not. The entrepreneurial attitude that everyone's looking for, to Isaac's point when he first started, when he said, You and I have talked about this, and it's sort of, he always had a hustle. That's being an entrepreneur. There's always this wanting of more, or always not happy with the way things are, or always finding the cracks in things that make opportunities for yourself, not just seeking opportunities that other people make, but actually creating them for yourself. Okay. That's the skill. So, if it came to passing on to something to the kids that's entrepreneurial but yet they might not be entrepreneurs themselves because if you're a doctor or whatever you could be entrepreneurial later in life it's just harder because you have just such regimen in life my thing is this is that the beauty of being an entrepreneur is to never be reliant on anyone and i'm not saying you shouldn't need someone in a relationship in a healthy way and have that kind of bond and and love and trust but what I am saying is this, like the beauty of being an entrepreneur is I never need to worry about whether or not I need a job from someone else or I need to go corporate. I am confident in who I am as Justin Bizarro to know that no matter what, I will be okay and I can work my way through anything and whatever family I have or situation I have. I have a work ethic and I know that I will outwork anyone because I was once an entrepreneur. So To me, like, I agree with you, Isaacs, how do you instill the things that we pull out as entrepreneurs, not necessarily being an entrepreneur, because they most likely aren't going to be that because it's a tough life. It is a tough life. It's like being a boxer. I describe it all the time. It's like being a professional fighter. You get the crap kicked out of you, and you got to stand up and go train again the next day, you know? So, um... It's that that I would want to instill in in the children. It's not necessarily that I'd like the entrepreneur thing needs to move on. I think it's important for free market, and I want them to have that mentality of freedom and liberty in their thought and creativity, like Isaac said. But I think the majority of what you really want is them to be able to take care of themselves and be whole humans. And so, being an entrepreneur, I will tell you, in my opinion we are more rounded humans we are more whole humans just because life and pain and having to take care of our families and other people generally make us that way and i'm referring to entrepreneurs i'm not referring to sole proprietors or business people or people that aren't entrepreneurs when i mean entrepreneurs i mean people that seek prosperity for the world around them in part of their pursuit and actually go seek solutions like isaac's doing sorry isaac i went on a tangent there but I wanted to answer no, to the question.
1: Point. No, and to your point, you know, it's like, so one of my children is going to be a mechanic. You know, the logical path for him is to go work at a dealership and, you know, learn that trade. And But what I'm trying to encourage him to do is to see outside of just that particular paradigm and to say, look, there are cars you could pick up on Craigslist or Facebook Marketplace that if you price them properly, you can put a little bit of work into them and then you can flip them. And then you can make a profit that way. And so I'm trying to, you know, for a kid who I don't think is going to be the, you know, the consummate entrepreneur, which is not a negative. It's just, just not, you know, where I think his path is. I want to teach him that there are other ways for him to make a living than just going and getting a job. You know, you may have a job, but on the weekends you can come back and you can rebuild a car that you can sell for a profit and, and you can make a good living doing that. And so just to, you know, to pass on that quote entrepreneurial side to my kids, I'm just trying to get them to look at the world in a different way, so that it's not so myopic that they just go, "Well, I have degree number X, and that means I have to go work here." No, that you've got an opportunity to do way more than that, and let's just be open to those possibilities. But you need to be able to see those opportunities to even know that they're there.
0: I and I love that Isaac because I think it's so important. We get so we're like, well, I spent well, it's not really eighteen years of school or I guess twenty-two years of school because I you don't go to school until you're like three or four, I guess. But I'm not going to do the math here right now. But either way, eighteen to twenty-two years somewhere in there, you end up in schooling. But the reality is, is we don't realize that it's such a small piece, and actually, it's all foundational. like we can choose a different path at any point and go learn it and excel at it we have a long life as humans and we should take the risk because in today's world the likelihood that we are going to live is higher than we're not going to and it did reverse itself over the last 100 years it was more likely that we were going to die younger before based on something especially as men um but here nor there so Like, life is worth taking the risk and finding those things. And I agree with you, Isaac, 100%. Like, smart entrepreneurs, like, really smart ones, like, and I don't mean smart that they're book smart or whatever. I mean intellectually that they they have the ability to change their own mind and grow their own mind. To me, that's intelligence. It's the ability to be aware of what's around you and admit you're wrong and grow and continuously grow, okay? Because the world changes, and while you might be right today, you're wrong tomorrow sometimes. That's just the way it is. And um, that being said is how do we handle all of that? You know, and how do we we manifest our life into all of that stuff? And it's about you know, as a human, you know, and I think I got off topic here, but it's it's really about how we see the life that we want, and then the choices we make um, either give us that life or they don't. And so often, are not like I see children or other entrepreneurs that you want this life. But you're not making the choices every day to get that life. And you don't have the discipline every day to get it. So I feel like as an entrepreneur and the difference, like I said, sole proprietor or entrepreneur, there's a discipline. There's an attitude. There's a goal. There's, there's an ability and a hunger to see something that doesn't exist yet. I don't know how else to put it. And that's the difference between an entrepreneur. But if you were just to give something to your children, I would love that they have that ability but the reality is, is if they have hard work, they have the ability to have a side hustle. Oh, I know what my point was. Like, really smart intellectual entrepreneurs know that you make the money in whatever business you're in, but you need to sink it into a hard asset. Like, does your business own the real estate? Do you own real estate in Airbnb? It? Like, you're never going to make enough money cash flow the rest of your life off your first business. You need to think about stable assets that then generate money that leads you into the next lifetime, possibly, or in a 2.0 or whatever. And it's the same we're talking about here. What he was just talking about with his son is there's more to this than just what's right in front of us. And that's what I talked about earlier in the podcast. The opportunity is being a mechanic, but the opportunities he has by being one is doing a 360. Okay. Oh, I can flip cars. Oh, maybe I can own my own mechanic shop one day. Oh, maybe there's an entrepreneurial friend I have that we can be business partners and I can be the business operations guy and he can be the entrepreneurial visionary guy. And we're both in the business. So there's things like that, that we close doors for our children. I think sometimes intentionally, which is why I like this question. Um, on another note is I think we try to be friends with our children and we try to be there and, and, and live vicariously sometimes through them that we don't realize that we need to instill these values in them. And it may not be entrepreneurial um, necessarily and they may not grasp onto them. But I think nearly by our actions, by being around people, and I do I say this to people, I coach and mentor all the time now, I just show up. They're like, well, what are you going to say to me? What's my questions for today? And I don't always have them. Today is a day that I'm just going to give you faith in yourself by just showing up and being for you there and knowing that you have someone in your life that does show up. And it's the same with relationships. It's the same with children. Like, I feel like the biggest thing that you can get out of being an entrepreneur and the lesson that I've learned as an entrepreneur is no matter what, I have to show up for the miracles to happen in my relationships and in my businesses. So a little bit of a tangent, but I agree with Isaac 100%. It's you've got to know your children just like you know your employees. And you've got to grow them in a way that you're not so attached to the outcome that it's a reflection of you. It's got to be they're growing and they're becoming the person they're supposed to be. And they only know what that is. And all you can do is foster it and support it and give it guidance, you know, morally and ethically, hopefully. And I think that that's part of being an entrepreneur is if you're a good, positive entrepreneur, you instill that in your children by just being around you. And I think, Isaac, I have met your daughter and I think she's a hard worker. And just by being around you, she's already got something that's hard to see because compared to the non-entrepreneurial families, she's getting way more lessons in life than her peers, and I think it just takes time for her to have the confidence to use those lessons, or her son for that no, matter. I, yeah, I agree. So, um, Isaac, I'm going to let you take us home. Uh, we went way over, and Isaac's like the nicest guy, and I really relate to Isaac's story. Um, Isaac, will you tell us where they can find you on social media, um, where you guys are located, and if there's any notes that you want to give the audience. I'm not going to say anything, guys. I will close this out, but I'm going to let Isaac finish his thoughts for today yeah. with us so it's all yours well, isaac
1: well i appreciate it. i think we've we've nailed it all so uh we're located in the nation's area of nashville tennessee at 5104 centennial boulevard and uh, you can find us online at uh, pepperfirehotchicken.com also our socials are instagram at pepperfire and facebook we're at Hot Chicken
0: awesome so thank you everyone uh, thank you Spotify I appreciate it you can find us on Spotify or anywhere else you grow yourself positively on podcasts I recommend again using your time with intent if you're going to listen to a podcast make sure it's something you're growing off of I know people like crime and all that stuff and I have like those and I do entertain myself for once in a while while I'm on the road with something like that to turn off my head but I think being intentional with your growth is important in your podcast listening so Keep sharing. I appreciate all of it, guys. I appreciate the growth. I'm really excited. We're you know, I like numbers and I, I believe in the spirituality of numbers and the importance of it and being the first language. So we're climbing to like oh well over a hundred thousand um, you know, listeners worldwide and 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 downloads and it's really, really, really cool to see it all increasing and people grasp onto it and believe in it as much as we do, which is interesting because I would have thought the podcasting world is so much more clustered because everyone has a podcast now compared to when I did it five years ago. There was hardly anyone um, out there in the numbers we're talking about now. But I appreciate you guys. Keep sharing. If you like Isaac's story, share story. If you like what Isaac's doing, follow him on Instagram. And if you're in Nashville, I heavily recommend ordering Isaac's Pepper Fire Chicken. Even if you're a hot chicken fan, go around Nashville, try different hot chickens, and try what Isaac's doing. I guarantee you that you will enjoy what he's doing. So thank you, everyone, for listening in. Again, please check us out on Spotify. And I again, guys, I want to say one last thing as a note. If there's any stuff in the studio and stuff, I'm still getting used to new studio and in Nashville there's like this plague that's going around so we're trying to just deal with issues and and recording times and staffing and it's a mess but we're doing the best we can so I appreciate everyone staying in there and kicking butt and supporting us and lastly god I appreciate all the love I'm getting on Instagram like it's really humbling and nice of you guys and I really wish you would actually click the follow button also so we could get love that way, but I'm good with not having any reward and and not attaching myself to the income. But I do appreciate all the love on there. Um, And I do appreciate that everyone is being so supportive of what we're doing here um, and supportive of the entrepreneurs. So thank you everyone for listening in. We went way over time, but I think it was worth it. And Isaac, thank you again, my man. I, we're going to be friends for a long time and I can't wait to hang out with you a bunch and see how you grow. So bye for now.